Welcome to Digital Health Unplugged. We're still powering through this lockdown to continue to bring you all of the healthcare IT news you need, internet problems or not. Today, we're going to be talking about privacy and patient data, which is really big news at the moment, especially around the development of the NHS contact tracing app and other coronavirus responses. I'm Andrea Downey, Senior Reporter for Digital Health, and joining me today are Hamza Drabu, Commercial Law Partner at health and social care law firm DAC Beechcroft. Hi there. Darren Hale, Senior Associate at DAC Beechcroft. Hello. And Phil Booth, Coordinator at Privacy Group Med Confidential. Hi there. So there's been a lot of concerns raised recently about patient privacy and the correct use of data, mainly around NHSX's development of a COVID-19 contact tracing app, which will be using Bluetooth to track users' phones and alert them if they've recently come into contact with someone who has reported symptoms. The point of this is so the NHS and public health authorities can trace where the virus might be moving and understand where hotspots might be, so that way they can try and stop the virus through social distancing measures. But, rightfully, when you're dealing with sensitive data, there are always going to be concerns. A couple of weeks ago, academics from 26 countries signed an open letter warning governments that these apps could catastrophically hamper public trust if they become a tool for mass surveillance. A similar concern was also raised in an independent review from the Ada Lovelace Institute, which found there is an absence of evidence for their use given the potential social impacts of tracing users. Now, that's not to say that an app won't be useful in the fight against coronavirus. Oxford University, which is advising NHSX on their app, conducted a study and found that the app would be very useful in preventing the spread of the virus, but it would need at least 60% of the population to use it. So those are just some of the examples of concerns around the use of patient data. This is certainly not a new subject. We've been talking about this since we first started collecting patient data. And that's because data is used to inform AI, machine learning, government policy, funding for the health system, medical research, design of medical devices. I could go on, but we really don't have all day. Um, So it's quite right that we are questioning how it is collected and also how it is used. And that is what our guests are here to help us understand. So first up, I've got a question for everyone. Why is it so important that we are, first of all, collecting patient data and also getting our use of it right? So before considering the sort of legal and ethical framework in which patient data is used and, and has to be used, I think it's worth taking a, a step back to, to think about the kind of the public perspective, really, in the sense that um, anything, any information relating to, date, to, to individuals' health sorry, is, is obviously inherently sensitive to them um, and understanding how that data is used by whom at all times and having trust in those people is obviously incredibly important so that's why in general terms it's really key to get it right and if you're able to take patients with you on that journey and so they they trust in in the use of their data then you ultimately get a much better product at the end of it Um, so in terms of the the sort of the, the legal importance there's, there's a number of requirements really so complying with the gdpr and ensure, ensuring that anything you do is lawful from that perspective um complying with the common law duty of confidentiality as well um and also sort of local professional guidance as well so from a, a legal framework perspective there was a, a number of potential pitfalls to ensure that you you navigate them successfully and don't open yourself up to potential liability um i don't know if hamza you want to come in at that point yeah, I mean, I think the piece around the narrative is 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 really key because the, the trust and confidence um, that you, you you build up with patients when it comes to sharing sharing their data can can be broken very easily. Um, there's so many multiple layers to the NHS, and in the current COVID nineteen outbreak, with everything being um, 
mobilise very quickly to deal with um, the the pandemic. There is a concern around uh, making sure that there is time built in for any engagement with with patients around what is is happening with their data. That's really critical. Hmm. I think in the current context uh, where we have a public health emergency, it, it, it sort of starkly illustrates the basic split. Why do we collect data? Well, the NHS collects data in order to provide direct care. That's what it does. There are many useful other uses of that data, and these are broadly called secondary uses, and there may be legal bases for doing those, and one of those legal bases often is consent, but there are other, other ones. But you know, there's a whole bunch of useful things about you know, legitimate medical research, which obviously there needs to be a lot of during the crisis with a virus we don't know, for planning, you know, uh, how you actually decide where you're going to put resources, what you're going to develop, what you aren't. And you know, embedded within both of those, to an extent, are elements of commercial use and reuse. So are all of these things important? Yes. But I think I agree very much with Hamza and Darren that we have to get it right, and for you know, Med Confidential's description for this is that every use of data must be consensual, safe, and transparent. Otherwise, you won't have the necessary prerequisites, if you like, for the trust that has to be maintained at the heart of the system. Yeah, of course. And you've touched on this already, both of you, the, the use of data during a pandemic, because obviously this has sped everything up recently. Do things differ in terms of how we collect and use data when we're in the face of a pandemic, or do we need to be using it in exactly the same way? Well, from a from a legal perspective, the the framework is is exactly the same. The um, the coronavirus act that sort of displays or, or modifies you know a number of existing pieces of legislation and, and laws has made no difference to the to the, the data protection regime. So in that from that perspective, um, compliance is as it was before the pandemic started. But inevitably, there is an entire different context in which we're using data now. And, and the ICO has, has recognised that in a number of statements to say that we are a reasonable and pragmatic and sensible regulator. And we will take into account the circumstances um, if they have an impact on your ability to comply with data protection legislation in, in any way. But it's also been very clear that the pandemic should not be used as a as a sort of a Trojan horse by which to um, get away with any poor data protection practices. Um, it shouldn't be used as a as a means by which to try and do something with data which is unlawful. So you still have to ensure that you comply with all of the requirements of of the GDPR and the Common Law Duty of Confidentiality. So taking a step back and looking at it more broadly. Um, there is a, I would say, a fairly broad understanding and consensus that information shared and used for genuine public health purposes has a real benefit to it, and um, and there's a real need for that on both a local and a national level. Um, but in doing so, you have to ensure that that use of data is, is necessary. Um, it has a proper pur purpose behind it, and ideally, it has been fully outlined to the to the public. Yeah. So same rules apply basically. Yeah. Well, there are specific rules that have literally been implemented. Um, as as um, I'm sure Darren and Hamza are aware, the, the COPE notices, the Control of Patient Information notices issued by um, the Secretary of State um, actually require bodies which um, otherwise might have had some question about what their duty of sharing was. Um, those are now required to pass uh, patient information 
uh, for the purposes, and they're broadly defined, uh, the purposes of uh, COVID-19 uh, care and uh, public health research. Um, and again, you know, I totally agree that you know, the data protection aspects of this have not changed. The, you know, the, the notices that I've just talked about are issued under uh, Regulation 3 of COPE, but Regulation 7 essentially says you, know, you have to comply with data protection. Um, there are broader issues around um, and that, that affect people's data around you know, human rights, and particularly in the current uh, situation uh, around equalities. Um, you know, we are seeing an absence of data, data flows, information, if you like, um, which indicate by their absence that certain segments of the population are being you know, disproportionately affected by um, you know, actions in and inactions of the authorities uh, through the crisis. So I would like to think that we, we look at this you know, and look at the sort of, if you like, the data aspects of it, but always ground it in what are the effects that that is having in people's lives. And, you know, when we talk about sort of data flows, we're not just talking about, you know, the flow for uh, the purpose of just processing that data, but the information that it carries, this is absolutely necessary to ensure that vulnerable people and everyone else get the support they need. Yeah. So we've mentioned the app already, but obviously this isn't the first time that decision makers in the NHS have faced concerns about the use of patient data. Um, I think the biggest one that springs to mind that maybe sends a shiver down everyone's spine in the NHS is care.data. Um, but there's also been loads of talks about commercialising data for medical research purposes that have also sparked some concerns. And I'm going to get onto that one a little bit later. Um, but I just wanted to ask, and I think this is probably more one for you, Phil. Are we on the right track with collecting and using and sharing patient data from an NHS point of view? I think at this stage, um, certainly in terms of the collecting and knowing what it is that we are actually um, processing, we are far better this side of uh, GDPR than we were the other side, yeah? simply because uh, that forced certainly the central NHS uh, to understand you know, the many thousands of data flows that went through it and to put in place processes and even to just you know, find the legal basis for what they were doing. So in terms of collection, I think we've certainly improved. Um, in terms of uh, some of the things about uh, what we call safety, you know, how you actually you know, handle and manage the data uh, once you've got a hold of it, uh, we're still a work in progress. There is something called a, a safe setting. Both Genomics England Limited, which handles genomic data, uh, has one, and NHS Digital has one, but not all of the data is being um, essentially, you know, uh, accessed exclusively through that safe setting. And so it is still the case that, unfortunately, you know, population scale data sets are being passed out uh, to uh, third parties outside the NHS. Some of those third parties even having what's called a commercial reuse or relicensing uh, agreement. So, um, you know, we have a scorecard that we've been working on for the or near, near eight years that we've been going now, uh, and uh, things are moving in the right direction, but it's still a very much a patchwork, and you know, events like this um, will, I think, uh, provide a test to the system. Yeah, we're, we're saying that we, you know, we, we want to be helpful. We'll, we'll keep an eye on things in the way that you would expect us to. We will advocate for 
you know, patients and doctors and all those, all those other things. But, um, you know, we know that certain parts of the system are going to be under extreme stress right now. Yeah, um, of course. And what we would hope is the learning to take away from this is that you know, those things that we've been saying for many years, if they had been in place by now, things would be a lot better. Just going to say that, that I agree with with what what Phil said, but I think I think one of the issues, and I actually used to work in in the NHS in a in a role um, focused on on data, um, and one of the things that really struck me was just actually the the fact that that data wasn't really captured in a particularly consistent way, um, and it, it it wasn't data that could easily be um, used for for um, uh, yeah, for specific specific purposes. It was it wasn't it wasn't actually patient data at this uh, in this role, but I think it it did strike me that there is some some upskilling to be done in the NHS around how to um, collect data um, properly still, even even post GDPR and post um, a lot of the the getting everyone's house in order around data protection concerns. So let's talk about accountability now, um, specifically with the app, because that's obviously one of the biggest headlines at the moment. Um, the NHS isn't the only organisation developing contact tracing apps. King's College London has created one. Apple and Google are developing tech to make it easier to develop one. And, you know, at Digital Health, we're getting notifications every day from so many different suppliers who are working on similar technology. Um, is there going to be any confusion and is there any risk of repercussions to having so many contact tracing apps on the market or being developed? They simply won't work. Um, the level of adoption that is required for any contact tracing app to work, as I think you've said, is 60% you know, or more. If, there are, if there's any more than one app being promoted in any one country, yeah, it is unlikely that you're going to get to the effective level of the thing. Um, yeah, most of the issues around the around the app are not anything to do with the technology or the particular approach taken. They have to do with whether people will trust it and whether people will actually use it. Um, you know, aside from that, obviously, in order to be actually epidemiologically effective and public health effective, you need testing. Yeah, an app, a contact tracing app that is based in the idea that someone self-reports symptoms simply. You know, there's there's no bit of science that shows that can work. Yeah, um, you, you, the, 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 the reports that you'll be getting will simply you know, generate noise, which will cascade across the system. Yeah, you have to have testing because it is actual contact tracing, yeah, the actual protocol that we use in public health. Then you actually test everyone who is declared to be, you know, positive. Yeah, or, or you know, who's met a person who's been declared to be positive. Yeah, if you're just saying, well, someone can report, I have the symptoms. And then you tell all a bunch of people who have come into contact with that person, or frankly, let's not let's be clear, whose mobile phone has been in uh, relative proximity to someone else's mobile phone for a certain amount of time, which is not the same as close contact in a public health sense. Um, you know, it's very, very unclear that the information or the, you know, the, 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 the signal, if you like, within the system is going to be of any use. So... Um, you know, I know this is still to be fully tested, but we've seen, say, over in Singapore, which was one of the first countries to, 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 to have such an app, the Trace Together app, uh, they got about 12, 13% of their population uh, to use the thing. Um, you know, it's not going to make any serious contribution at that sort of level. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that 
the, the sort of the contact tracing app has to be seen alongside all of the various other public health measures that will help to um, mitigate the pandemic um, in in the best way possible. And it's a sort of one of the first pieces in the puzzle to to drive other actions, as Phil has said, including testing. So if you've got a proliferation of different apps, which sort of then you know spreads the uptake over a number of different ones, then you say you've got twenty percent on one particular app, fifteen on another. The the information available to the public health authorities will be um, of very little value, really. So absolutely, if there's no clear consensus as to which app should be used, um, then it potentially does create a number of a number of problems. So, um, yeah, that's probably all, all I need to say about that, really. Yeah, and it's just confusing from a consumer's point of view to work out which app you need to download and which one's the best one to use. It's it's really overwhelming um, when you see so much coming onto the market. Um, Hamza and Darren, I also wanted to ask you about the legal processes that need to be in place before apps are released onto the market. What does the NHS need to make sure it's doing in order for this app to be um, you know, legally sound, data-wise and privacy-wise? Darren, I'll leave that one for you. Okay. So um, uh, there's, I mean, obviously complying with the, the, the legal framework is, a, is an obvious answer. Um, but there are a number of specific facets of that, um, which the uh, the ICO has produced a short piece of guidance and to the effect that, if at all possible, the use of this data should be ideally anonymised. Um, and the European Data Protection Board has released more detailed guidance around around that um, and what can be considered truly anonymous. So uh, the first step is to work out whether you have identifiable, identifiable data or not. And there's a number of factors in that, which includes um, sort of population density um, and which can be overlaid over um, other information such that even though you might not necessarily assume that um, something is identifiable information, in reality, when you combine it with other factors, it is. So it may only be pseudonymized. So that's, that's the first thing you need to, to kind of work out. There's then the sort of technical platform that underpins it. And I think we saw on the BBC yesterday that there's a, a difference in approach between the sort of the, the Google Apple model, which adopts a more, uh, it's described as sort of decentralized approach, so that the kind of matching takes place on a, on a local handset level, whereas the, the NHS app's favored approach is a more central approach such that the mass the um the matching takes place on a, on a server and that then drives sort of you know what sort of uh, technical and security and operational requirements um you might need to put in place um and then um, once you sort of mapped out those those data flows uh, working out what data you've got is it no more than necessary uh, who will have control over that data um to what purposes will it be used um, and then also ensuring transparency. So when users download the app, giving them as much information as possible so that they, they are fully informed about what data will be collected, how it will be used and by whom. Um, I'd say those are the kind of key points, really. Just on the ICO, um, they are issuing, as, as I think you just said, Brown, um, you know, rolling opinions. So they are clearly a part of the oversight function for NHS X, NHSX's and GCHQ's development tool. Uh, the app, uh, but they have also issued an Apple Google API opinion. Uh, so on the basis of the information that the ICO has, they've essentially said both approaches are fine. Yeah, there's, there's no there's no dispute on a sort of data protection layer. However, on the point about the you know, anonymity or otherwise of the data, just this afternoon, Matthew Gould, the chief executive of NHSX, said that it is the you know, intention of NHSX for their app that they're building at the moment to 
you know, provide the possibility for someone to volunteer their actual location data. So all questions about this being an anonymous or anonymized approach sort of fall away at that point if, you know, at least for some people, what they're handling is you know, location data over time, which we know is highly identifiable. So all of these things are moving targets to an extent, but there's no, there's no sign at, at this point um, you know, that someone's sort of you know, trying to sort of um, pull a fast one, shall we say. So is there any risk that companies could exploit the data that's being put into this app? And what protections do we need to have in place to ensure that people's privacy and that their, that their data is protected? So I'm I'm happy to sort of start uh, start that answer. I think it's kind of twofold, really. It's a sort of uh, an overall kind of regulatory sort of compliance check, I suppose, and then the, the kind of commercial framework that, that underpins that through the, the contract that you have in place, and which, which Hamza's um, better place to comment upon. But um, I would say that key is the, the sort of the early groundwork, really. So your, your data protection impact assessment, your, your data map mapping exercise, uh, working out what data is actually needed for the, the purposes that you want to use it for, and um, ensuring that you implement data minimization as, as a result of that. So identify you know what data you will need to flow in order to make make everything work um, ensuring that no more data than is necessary flows for that purpose um, and then um, it, working out from your data protection impact assessment what security mitigations need to be in place um, and then as I said you would have a sort of contract which underpins all that and, and most importantly the consequences should any of it go wrong which has right placed yeah i think that that's one where yeah it's exactly that two part so once um you've gone through that that mapping and impact assessment process you would look to essentially lay down your your contractual framework with the um companies you're engaging with specifying the parameters um on on the data side uh, and having appropriate contractual levers in place if there are any breaches of those terms so that you've got recourse um if, if there is any compliance issues there hmm. I, I mean i'd look at it from maybe a, a different view, point of view than hamza and darren in the sense that you know this technology that we're talking about uh, bluetooth low energy uh, or bluetooth low energy beacons was originally incorporated into apple's operating phone operating system uh, as an advertising technology okay so let's be very clear about where it's come from and why the capability is in the phone already um, so in terms of risks uh, and from a technical perspective, um, you know, those of us in the community who are looking at how um, the, tra the tracing and, the, and the, if you like, the pinging between devices is being done, the biggest risk is if someone, whether that's, you know, someone who controls the phone, uh, therefore Google or Apple who write the operating system, they control the phone, or in the case of uh, the NHS app, um, you know, GCHQ, who controls the central sort of decryption of uh, the identifiers, if either of those are able to uh, persist a link between the identifiers that are being passed around and the device, then they become surveillance devices. Yeah. Uh, so the, the huge risk from the Google Apple side of things would be that during COVID, they've said what they'll do, they're publishing, they're openly publishing their code, and it is very clear that what's being passed around are temporary random uh, IDs that are being generated on a 12 or 24 hourly basis. Uh, but they've had to undertake to switch this functionality off at the end of the crisis, because otherwise, because they 
know, are the ones that are putting out Android operating system or iOS operating system, they would essentially then be able you know, have a facility within that phone to you know, generate and link you know, your location, your proximity social network across devices uh, for a whole range of other purposes, you know, advertising or otherwise. So I wouldn't say that these are risks within the context of the pandemic and undertakings have already been given. Um, but you know, we, we should be really, really clear here that you know, we are doing something because we have to. And we are going right up to the edge of what would be otherwise acceptable uh, during normal times for the level of you know, surveillance capability that we are actually utilising. Yeah. So let's talk about something non-coronavirus related for a bit, because I think we could all use that break. Um, <laughs> so a few privacy concerns have been raised in the past over different different programmes. Um, in December, which feels like ages ago now, key players in the NHS met up with some big tech and pharma companies to discuss the commercialisation of patient data. Uh, papers from the meeting suggested that patient data from the NHS could be valued at up to £10 billion a year. And they were apparently looking at creating a single standardised longitudinal patient record from the data of 65 million patients, which would be then used to inform things like medical research. Uh, Meeting wasn't widely publicised beforehand, so many members of our digital health networks of CCIOs and CIOs and CNIOs had no idea what was happening, which sparks a little bit of concern because a lot of them have been involved in the process of setting up like shared records and likers. So it seemed a little bit secretive at the time. Um, I'm not sure who'd be best place to ask this question, um, but what I'd like to know is how can the NHS commercialise patient data without risking people's privacy? Well, it's an ongoing question. Um, and that, that was a leak of uh, materials that, um, you know, as part of ongoing ongoing work so um, in this area um, there are you know government has singularly failed not just for health data uh, but has singularly failed to be able to come up with a way of valuing citizens personal data yeah there are various you know, estimates out there um, but you know there is no clear way to do that it's, it's actually quite a tricky thing to put a number onto it and frankly putting a number uh, a financial number onto data is not always the best way of valuing it either if there are other effects, health, social and other effects. But the Office for Life Sciences and uh, BIS uh, were going through an exercise that occurred, I think, you know, um, last time we spoke to them at least, was um, was, was in sort of early part of this year, where you know they are trying to come up with some commercial models, sort of business models, not necessarily putting numbers on them, but you know, trying to say, look, are these the types of things that we could, A, we could do, and B, that would be acceptable to the public? Um, and until I think they actually surface that, um, so it's not so much the secret meetings that were going on and the very plans and, hey, this is very valuable, we all know that. It is what are, in practice, are they going to say, are the sorts of deals that can be cut when? You have to put these in the context of deals which have gone badly wrong, which have been cut by individual, uh, you know, foundation trusts or what have you. Uh, I'm thinking, in particular, your, your listeners may have may recall the whole Deep Mind Royal Free one that turned out to be an illegal deal. Uh, but yeah, you know, there are many other situations in which all sorts of um, really quite 
uh, important issues, which I'm sure Hamza and Darren will know more about than I do around intellectual property, uh, all those sorts of things. You know, these really have not been properly surfaced and worked through. So if we are going to be talking about any form of uh, commercialization or commercial benefit flowing back to the NHS and ultimately you know, to patients in their care and treatment, then I think we need to be talking very, very clearly and very, very openly about you know, exactly what you know, business models are we talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the the Google DeepMind rule free collaboration was a was an interesting one, um, and uh, the particular issue there was was really the the proportionality and necessity of processing in the sense that the entirety of um, five years worth of of patients um, attendance at hospital records were you uh, sorry the accidents and emergency departments were used in order to, to test the efficacy of the app. Um, and that was felt to be entirely disproportionate because why do you need so much data simply for, for, for testing purposes? Um, and I suppose we don't need to get too bogged down in the, the minutiae of that, but it, it proves the point that you have to think at all stages about what data you're using and why. Um, and so that's the, the first point, really, in sort of safeguarding privacy. Do you actually need to use live patient data, for example, or, or would, would dummy data suffice? Um, and the sort of the negative publicity which kind of resulted from that proves the point that as to you know unless you take patients with you and, and they, they trust in in the collaborations technologies whatever it may be then you've got a real problem really um so if if at all possible using use of pseudonymized data or anonymized data is is clearly an important step in in safeguarding privacy and confidentiality um but also that as i say that overall transparency agenda um and the, um, the the office for for life science sort of framework that, that Phil has has alluded to um, is is something which may may help with that. Um, uh, the difficulty is is kind of navigating the right line between the health um, so the the NHS and, and the industry side of things and, and making it fair and, and balanced and all that sort of thing. Um, so that's a bit of a challenge. Um, but the more that comes out from 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 the centre, I suppose, from government as to you know, to create a sort of a nationalised picture of how this should all, all look and, and helping patients to understand the benefits that can be derived from these collaborations. Um, all of those things combined together, I, I would hope, would, would make things um, slightly um, more transparent uh, and, and above all else more robust from a legal perspective. Just, just to, to add to, to both of those points, I think the commercialisation of patient data is a difficult nut to crack because I think ultimately if you're looking at that data and I think as Phil mentioned when it comes to putting a number on it it's it's very very tricky because largely it is around potential and the data that we're talking about here is often unstructured and given the pressure that's on a number of uh, our NHS provider clients for example the ability to invest in a skill set to actually sift through that data and turn it into something that's more structured and, and, and ready to be um, used for um, you know particular uh, research purposes isn't necessarily always high on on the agenda. Um, so I think actually having some sort of central framework. I know NHSX has um, the centre of expertise, which is um, being pulled together, and having that centralised commercial and legal advice. I think would be welcome for many of the NHS providers in the sector that are aware of the, the potential of the data that they have, but 
actually need some support around how best to, to go about commercializing that in a way that is safe and ultimately benefits patients in, in, in the long term. Um, the flip side of that where you don't have the necessary guidance in place is that you do end up with potentially rogue deals happening and exclusivity arrangements being entered into which ultimately can lead to a, a raw deal for the NHS and um, a raw deal ultimately for patients leave alone all of the privacy concerns. And this is one of the points about taking the safe setting approach which I guess is also being um, you know, part of the, I don't know if your readers or listeners will have come across the innovation hubs, digital innovation hubs from Health Data Research UK. Um, yeah, there is an idea here that if there is a, if, if the, the, the data can be gathered from across uh, all the various bodies and parts of um, the NHS, and as both um, Darren and Hamza have pointed out, I think that, that, that you know, this is not data that is gathered for the purpose of feeding to an AI. It is data that is gathered for the purpose of communication between human clinicians. Um, so to gather all this stuff up in whatever form it may appear and bring it to a place where it can be you know, curated and linked and essentially sort of you know, turned into something that is a more um, readily sort of researchable or usable uh, form, that's at the heart of this, this plan. Um, you know, there's even been a budget line for it in previous budgets. You know, they, they reckon that to do the curation for the this whole NHS data corpus will cost between three to five billion pounds, and the government set aside nearly a billion to try to trigger spend, you know, investment in to get the rest of the money to get this job done. I mean, that's all gone out the window for now, but you know, the the, the agenda was fairly well advanced. Um, whether or not that is wise, whether or not we have all the governance uh, and other things that are absolutely necessary in place, whether or not we have the transparency. Frankly, the fact that this stuff was trickling out like this and we haven't heard much about it suggests we haven't. Um, you know, all that remains to be seen. But I think the focus is right now on, um, you know, in, in the COVID context, is we have one of these giant data stores. We have one of these things where we're pulling data you know, in a crisis into one place. So that is going to provide an exemplar um, for you know, not exactly this approach, but going to provide an exemplar for exactly what can be done uh, you know, in a pinch and whether or not it, that is, is actually even viable. Yeah, so it sounds like we just need some proper robust guidance for everyone to follow in order to make sure we're collecting and sharing data properly and also need to be open and transparent about how we're using it in the process, although I'm sure it's probably far more complicated than I'm making it sound. <laughs> Uh, well, Hamza, Darren and Phil, it's been extremely interesting having you on Digital Health Unplugged and thank you so much for joining us. And to everyone listening at home, thanks again for tuning in. Don't forget that we publish fortnightly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iTunes so you can give us a follow on any of those platforms. And as always, if you've got any topics for a discussion that you want to hear on a podcast, please drop me an email at adowney, that's D-O-W-N-E-Y, at digitalhealth.net. Stay safe, everybody, and we will see you next time. Bye.